You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, a conversational podcast where we explore all the amazing work being done out of Ames Research Center. I'm Michelle Johnson, filling in for Matt Buffington for this week's 86th episode. Our guest today is Doug Caldwell, the instrument scientist for the Kepler Space Telescope, and who's now working on NASA's next planet hunting mission, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS for the acronym INCLINE. TESS is launching early next week, and Doug and his team will be standing by ready to examine the first data coming down from this new spacecraft. He's helping to develop the software to process what we're all hoping will be the next greatest hit following Kepler and exoplanet discoveries. With that in mind, let's listen to our conversation with Doug Caldwell. So, Doug, there's a story behind everyone's journey to NASA. How did you get here? Well, I, it started a while ago, and my fiance actually got a job out here after graduate school, and I came out looking for a job, and I had been applying for, for mm. postdocs after I finished my astronomy degree. Um, and I was actually in a, in a got invited to a chocolate tasting by, by mm. Jack Lissauer, who's one of the uh, co-investigators on the Kepler mission. And mm-hmm. we were just chatting, and he was asking me, you know, oh, what are you doing here, and what are, you, what are you doing? I told him I was looking for a job, and he said, you should talk to this guy, Bill Baruki. He's, he's got this little telescope at Lick Observatory in San Jose nearby that he's looking for people to help out with and help observe. And uh-huh. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting, something to do. So I, I talked to Bill, um, and he was keen to recruit people to help him out. And so I started working on this Vulcan telescope, which was a small uh-huh. telescope looking for planets around other stars. Um, and I started as an observer, and then I started working on the software to do the data analysis mm-hmm. and helping to keep the instrument working and running. And all this this whole project was really sort of a, a testbed or a prototype for the Kepler mission, which was this, being this, planned this, and proposed. And this Project Vulcan, you said? Yeah. That's an interesting name. Yeah, it was chosen um, because there there was, not, not for Mr. Spock's homeworld, but in the early 1900s, people thought there was another planet on the other side of the sun mm. uh, sort of mirroring Mercury's orbit, and it I was see. called Planet Vulcan. And so since our little telescope could only see big planets in short period orbits around their stars, that was we decided to name it after that wow. planet. So Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, you, you mentioned Spock, too. I remember <laughs> reading something about uh, a Spock character in the story of Vulcan. Oh, there, yeah, there was a Spock. He, uh, I'm not sure if it was a he or she. We had, it's this very small dome that we got donated by the observatory that, that Bill and the team had to fix up and put in a new floor and fix the holes in the roof. Mm-hmm. And it was already inhabited by mice and other creatures. And, <laughs> and Mr. Spock was one of the little mice who ended up living inside of one of our computers and chewing some of the cables and causing problems every few months of us having to go up and change out some hardware. So we have... Chocolate so far. <laughs> we have Vulcan. We have Mice. Spock, the the mouse. Boy, Doug, this is a very interesting start. What's next? <laughs> so what's next was as this Vulcan project was going on. The, the real goal again was was to do this kind of a search for planets. I mean, this mm-hmm. was the science goal was to find planets, ideally that that could potentially be like the Earth around other stars to find out if they existed or not. And Bill Baruki had had this idea that he put forth in I think first in 1983 that you could mm-hmm. do this from space with a telescope to observe stars. And so this, the Kepler mission had been proposed to NASA to do this job several times. And I started helping to support the proposal that went in in, the, in 2000. 
and ultimately got accepted by NASA. And let me ask you, what, just in case people are just tuning in, what is Kepler? Kepler is, is a telescope that NASA launched with the goal of finding out whether planets small like the Earth are common or rare in our galaxy. Okay. And, and teaser, you know, cut, cut to the end, the answer is they're common. Excellent. And that's what Kepler found. And so mm-hmm. that's a, a really exciting fundamental science result that we didn't know even uh, 10 years ago. Um, we started to have inklings, but really we know for sure now. Right, right. So my, my job was, was mm-hmm. to take the work we had done for Vulcan, which was a little tiny ground-based telescope using a camera lens to look for these kinds of planets around other stars and show that what we had learned from there could help translate into operating Kepler, being able to observe lots of stars, analyze all the data, look at the results, find potential planets, and then follow up and decide if we really believe what we had found or not. So a camera, tell us a little bit more about that and when, when what that means, because this was early days of this t- technology, right? Um, yeah, sort of. So Kepler and Vulcan both are measuring the brightness of a star that they're looking at, and they're okay. looking at a lot of stars. And what they're trying to find out is if a planet happens to pass in front of that star, as seen from us, it'll block part of the light from the star, and the star will get a little bit dimmer. Okay. And so the way we do that is we just take pictures of the stars. And with Kepler, it's every 30 minutes we take a picture. Mm-hmm. And we downlink those pictures to the Earth. And we measure the brightness of each star in each picture. And we say, did it get a little bit dimmer? And if, if the answer is yes, we say, OK, well, maybe that's potentially a planet passing in front of it. Mm-hmm. And, and how much dimmer? What are you it, talking it, about? Because these, these stars are pretty far away. The stars are far away. And it turns out it, it's, it ends up being it's the fraction of the star that gets blocked by the planet. It's the ratio of the area of the planet to the area of the star. So a big planet okay. like Jupiter going around the sun, Jupiter is, is about 1% the area of the sun. So it blocks about 1% or one part in 100 of the sun's light. Okay. Um, a small planet like the Earth is much smaller, uh, obviously, and <laughs> blocks... Uh, only about one part in 12,000 of the sun's light. So, so Earth going in front of a, sun, of a star like the sun seen from far away would change the brightness of the star by one part in 12,000. Or in Kepler land, we like to measure things in parts per million. Yeah, How so, many parts per million? So the, uh, Earth going in front of the sun is 84 parts per million. So that means if the sun's brightness is a million units, it, when the Earth goes in front of it, it's... Uh, I have to do math in my head now. It's 999,916. You know, it's, okay, it's, very, it's only a very little bit dimmer. Imagining all these numbers. Yeah, okay. so it's, it's, it's the sun is a big spotlight, and you have something like a tiny little fly flying in front of it, and you're trying to not to see the fly, but to measure, oh, that light got a little bit dimmer, and that's, that's Kepler's job. So I heard an analogy once, like looking at a car, a headlight of a car in the distance, a mile or 10 miles away, and a gnat crossing in front of it and being able to detect the change in brightness of that light. Yeah, so that's that's what Kepler is is doing. I mean, that's a that's a pretty good analogy. I'd have to measure the size of a gnat in a headlight to see if it's exactly accurate, but it's it's you get the idea. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very precise. small it's a very small change. And and we have to do that for for planets like the Earth. We only see this signal when the planet goes in front of its star. And so if if we if we were looking at something that was the system matched ours where you had a, an Earth orbiting in a one-year period orbit, then that, that signal would only last about 12 or 13 hours. Okay. It takes about 12 or 13 hours for the Earth to cross the disk of the sun. And then you have to wait a whole year to see it again. So you have to see this very small change and be able to measure it over 
the scale of a year or two mm-hmm. years or three years, and that was what Kepler was designed to do. Um, but like our sun, most uh, stars are active and have star spots, right? And don't those also come into play and change the brightness of a star? I mean, how do you disentangle that? They do, and and generally the the changes in the brightness of a star just by its natural star spots and as its magnetic cycles are changing are uh, much bigger than this 84 parts per million. And the two key things that really help us in looking for these signals, like we call them transits, when the planet goes in mm-hmm. front of the star, um, are that they are generally a fairly short time scale. For, like I said, for Earth, it's about 12 or 13 hours. For a planet in closer, it can be an hour to a few hours. And on those time scales, stars are pretty stable. And then the other thing that really helps us is we know that as planets are orbiting their star, they they move according to Kepler's laws, which is where we got the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they're very periodic. And so if we see a signal and then we see a comparable signal again in one year, well, that could easily just be two noisy things lining up. But if we see it again... Two noisy things? Two, two star spots, maybe, or, okay. or just random fluctuations of the star. Okay. Um, but if we see another one exactly the same time later, now we've seen three things that are periodic. Three times a charm. Three times is a charm, mm-hmm. and four times, and five, and six, and seven is really a mm-hmm. super charm. And so mm-hmm. we, the, the more we see, the more confidence we have in being able to say, this is really something orbiting around the star rather than just some change in the star, which wouldn't be as periodic. Now, let's go back to you and your specific role in being the instrument scientist. Um, and the instrument, the, the telescope that the part that you're responsible for. Tell us a little bit more about that and and how those, because as I understand it, it's yeah. like the early days of the digital cameras, these lenses. Yeah, so so as we mentioned earlier, we're, we're the way we're doing this, the way we're measuring this brightness is with a camera. It's a digital camera. Mm-hmm. And Kepler is a, a digital camera with 84, or I'm sorry, 94 megapixels, 95 megapixels, 95 million pixels. It's a big camera, especially when it was originally designed and built in, in sort of early 2000s. It was very big, um, and it's it's basically it's taking a picture of the stars, as I said, every thirty minutes, and we just get this very boring picture of of the stars. Once you've seen it, it's kind of like okay, those are the same stars you've been looking at for four years. Um, but what we want to do is is again measure this measure this change in brightness. So the mm-hmm. important thing about Kepler's camera is that it's it's very stable. We know how it behaves very well as it takes these pictures. It doesn't introduce a lot of changes in brightness. It's not, it's not moving around a lot on the sky. And my job as instrument scientist, especially during the development and testing of the Kepler instrument, was to check that as we were building the, the instrument, this camera, and putting it together, that it was really going to be able to do what we wanted it to do. And so Ball Aerospace is the company that, oh, yeah. that built mm-hmm. Kepler. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had an excellent team that was putting this together and doing testing. And my job was sort of su- was supporting them and trying to understand when we saw something during a test, was it okay? Was it going to still do what we wanted it to do scientifically? Mm. As you build any large, complicated thing, you run into things aren't quite what you thought and, or you run into issues. something never before done, right? I mean, you didn't have a, a previous example that you could turn to and say, okay, this is this is what it means or this is what it should look like. 
you or the team were kind of making this up as you go and and learning as or I should say learning as you as you went along. Yeah, we we were really. I mean, there had been these these digital cameras in use in astronomy and in other places for a while, but we were really trying a different use of it. We we didn't want to take really pretty pictures like Hubble does okay. with high with high resolution sure. and detail. We wanted to take a very stable picture over a long time. Right. And the, and that was the question of how stable can this be? And, and so that was what we were tr- really testing. Trying to measure that uh, that precision of that fluctuation in brightness. This that, very small change in yeah, brightness when Earth right. goes in front of the sun. Yeah. Okay. So the Kepler Space Telescope is still up in orbit, collecting data, but has a new mission, K2. Now, you as the instrument scientist, have you had to make any adjustments or what What does that mean for like a new mission? Because it's, it's looking at new fields of view. It's doing something entirely different than what the previous mission had done. What, what does that mean for your job? Yeah, as, as one of the main parts of my job during Kepler was to make sure nothing changed. Um, mm-hmm. We really wanted this thing to be stable, you know, put the instrument up there and don't touch it, don't mm-hmm. change anything. And when we came to K2, it was like, okay, now we have to change everything. And so it was kind of, mm-hmm. it, it was a, a big uh, turnaround in our in our viewpoint of how we ran things, but we really wanted to optimize to to make this instrument the best it could be in this new mission where it's now pointing in a different direction every 90 days. We're looking at a lot of different kinds of stars that we had been looking at in Kepler. And did you have um, to make any adjustments to the telescope, like the, the instrument itself then? We, the- we did, yeah. There were a lot of operational changes just to fly it in this new mode. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't so directly involved in them, but what we did have to do was the, the telescope was very stable, and the main thing that changed was as, as it orbited the sun, the temperature would change slowly as the, as the telescope went around the sun. And that was one of our biggest sources of, of noise in the data, of things that caused us problems in looking for planets. In K2, that change happens much faster and is, much, and is actually lar- and is larger. So we end up having to remove more instrumental effects that show up in the data. And, and like, part of my job- Like what, what, what are instrumental effects? Uh, two biggest are as the, tel- as the sun moves around the parts of the telescope that it's hitting, the temperatures change and the focus of the telescope changes. And so mm-hmm. as the stars go in and out of focus, their brightness changes. Okay. And it's not changing because a planet's going in front of them, it's changing because the telescope's changing. So we need to be able to remove that. The other big effect is that, again, as the, as the telescope's changing its orientation with respect to the sun, the electronics are getting warmer and cooler. Okay. And Kepler's uh, fancy digital camera has uh-huh. some artifacts in, elect- in its electronics that we learned to live with during Kepler, and we're now those those are showing up. They're they're strongly dependent on the temperature of the electronics, and so we're seeing those effects more prominently in K two. Mm-hmm. We also had to make some operational changes to allow us to look at different sets of stars with more or less pixels that we devote to each mm-hmm. star. There's a couple of different ways of doing follow-up of and studying the stars and doing and using ground-based telescopes, so those that are on the ground and looking up through the atmosphere uh, of Earth, and then those in space, like Kepler. Um, what's it like to operate a telescope in space? And from your vantage point as an instrument scientist, what are, what, what are some of the challenges and, and or uh, opportunities that come along with being in space? Of course, the biggest challenge is you've built this thing and put it on a rocket and sent it away. So you can't touch it and you can't tweak it, yeah. uh, to, except to the extent that you can adjust things, you know, parameters and how it, how it operates. But you can't change out resistors or anything like that. So that, that means you really have to be confident when you launch it that it's going to work. Um, 
the the real advantage is being in space really uh, puts you in a different class of the kind of precision that you can do mm-hmm. in these kind of measurements. Mm-hmm. We, had, we had been working on this Vulcan telescope, and other people had been doing ground-based searches Which for transits on the ground, okay. on the ground mm-hmm. um, looking through the atmosphere, mm-hmm. and the sun's rising and setting. Right. Okay. Um, and we had, t- we had observed, and other groups had observed, uh, a number of transiting planets before Kepler launched, a, a few tens, and they were seen from the ground. They were big. They were the size of Jupiter. And we'd all looked at them and understood they're very complicated and hard to get out of the data. When we launched Kepler, there was one of those transiting planets that was in the Kepler field of view. We knew that in advance. And I remember the Kepler launched. We went through commissioning, which is basically the checking out the instrument and making sure it's going to work. And then we took 10 days of data that were, that were supposed to be like the real science operation so we could check out our data analysis and that we could actually do this for real once we started up. We downlinked those 10 days of data and this known transiting planet was one of the targets we looked at, of course. And I remember we, a group of us were up in building 244 here at NASA Ames, mm-hmm. looking at sitting in front of the computer when these data came in and we quickly put together the, the measurement of these brightness of this, of this one target, the light uh-huh. curve of the star for 10 days. And up until this point, we had built this instrument and tested it, and we were pretty confident that it was going to work. But we weren't, everyone was sort of, you know, this well, the, it's probably going to work. This is the we're test. This is the and, truth, and right? this is it. And when, when we saw this, this light curve, this measurement of brightness from this one known transiting planet, Hat P7, it's called, um, we were just stunned. And it, it was, mm-hmm. the data were so beautiful. It looked like a model that people used to simulate these transiting planets, and we just couldn't believe it. And and we saw the big drop in brightness, big like one percent drop in mm-hmm. brightness. Oh, okay. Um, so that's a thousand as, as parts we, per million in so Kepler Jupiter, land. Jupiter yeah, size. Yeah, Jupiter size. Okay. Um, we saw this big drop in brightness as the planet went in front of its star, and then we looked a little more carefully. It's a short period planet that orbits in like three days, I think. Ooh. And at the at the halfway point. When the planet was going behind the star, we saw another drop in brightness. And, and we sort of puzzled at that for a few seconds. And, and actually, the discoverer had mentioned that this might be possible with Kepler. We were seeing the light from the planet that when it went behind its star, we no longer saw that light. So the total system of star plus planet was a little bit brighter than just the star. And so we were seeing the reflected light of this planet wow. as it went away. The, the depth of that signal was about 100 parts per million. And when we saw that, we all knew, okay, this, this, this machine work. we built can do it. It can work. Wow. Okay. So that was very exciting. Was that a fist bump high five or it a It definitely hug was, moment? yeah. It was, it was a very exciting. And we were, we were, we were just uh, kind of relief and yeah. excitement. It's like, yeah. okay, it worked good. Yay. <laughs> wow. Wow. So we talked a lot about Kepler and K2, mm. but there's another mission coming up um, that you've also been working on. Uh, NASA's next exoplanet hunting mission. Yeah, it's launching in about what thirteen days. It from is thirteen today? days. Yes, uh-huh. so less than two test weeks. The transiting exoplanet survey satellite. Yes. Wow. So, what's your role on that? My role is working mainly on the data analysis end. So, the TESS uh, Science Processing Operations Center, Spock, mm-hmm. another Spock, ah. will, oh, will be here at NASA Ames, and this is where we'll get the data down from the spacecraft, take the the pixels the images of all these stars, measure their brightnesses, and search through those measurements for transiting planets, and then ship the results out to the public and to to the science team for further analysis at that point. So my role in helping the Spock here 
for Tess is to is to work with the scientists and the the pipeline development scientists. No, uh, pipeline development scientists. So the, the the software programmers who are building the data analysis pipeline. Okay. And and try and make sure that they each understand what they're doing and and that the software they're building does what the scientists want to do and the scientists uh-huh. understand what they're getting out of the pipeline. All right. Now this um, is a familiar pipeline though. Correct? It is very familiar. It's it's based uh, on the Kepler data analysis pipeline that Test is a very different instrument than Kepler, but mm-hmm. it, but basically it's the same thing. It's a digital camera looking at stars, taking pictures, and measuring the brightness. So that okay. so once the data come down, the formats are a little different, the numbers of stars are a little different, but it's essentially the same goal. We want to measure the brightness of lots of stars, remove any effects that are caused by the instrument, mm-hmm. and then search for planets. And did you work on the the instrument part of of Test as well? I didn't work on the instrument part of, of Test. That was built at MIT. Um, I've been trying to help to take some of the characteristics they've learned about the instrument testing and make sure that they're in the pipeline for fixing them, mm-hmm. for correcting them as, as we need to. Sure, sure. You said you're working on the, the pipeline processing part of, so getting the data ready so we can hand that off to the scientists and the public at large to go and play with and, and search for planets. And, and TESS is looking for planets uh, in the same way that Kepler was looking for planets. But they're a little bit different. They're what, they're closer it, to home, or it is different. Yeah. So Kepler was looking at during the main Kepler mission, looking at one patch of the sky at about 170,000 stars that it stared at for four years, the same set of stars. Okay. And we were really looking for ideally planets that took about a year to go around their star that was like the sun and were like the size of the Earth. And and what Kepler found, you shouldn't forget about this, is that there are lots of planets out there. Yeah. Basically, every star in the sky has planets. Yeah, it's easy to forget. Um, I mean, the, yeah, they're so commonplace. Oh, <laughs> right. another planet discovery. Oh, fantastic, yeah, right? Deal. But uh, but really, when you started on this, that was that was not we didn't know, yeah, not it at all. I mean, there was a belief, but mm-hmm. now there's a knowing. Now there's a knowing, mm-hmm. and and we also know, not only are there more planets than stars in the sky, but there are a, a lot of planets that are small like the Earth and potentially habitable, meaning they're at about the right distance from their star mm-hmm. where they, they're at a comfortable temperature. So is that what TESS is looking for then? Or what kind of planets is, will TESS so, be looking for? So Kepler found these planets far away, mm-hmm. and now we know they're there. And so TESS is doing an all-sky survey. It's going to look at the entire sky and okay. look at the nearest stars and try and find stars nearby us that have planets. So we know planets are out there. Now we want to say okay, they're common. Well, does this star have one? Does this star have one? And Tess is going to make a catalog of all the nearest stars. Why is that important? Why is near important? Near is important because that lets you do a lot more science on the the planet you find using other telescopes on the ground Mm -hmm. or in space. And and so NASA is launching the James Webb Space Telescope coming up soon. Mm -hmm. And one of its goals is to be able to actually measure atmospheres of these planets. And that for the Kepler for, planets, what are we measuring the atmospheres for? Ultimately, what? we'd like to see if we can find indications of life in the atmosphere. Okay. We we want to start by saying, can we find things like water and carbon dioxide? Mm-hmm. Do they we'll even test, have an atmosphere? And will TESS be able to do that, or what will TESS tell us? TESS won't measure atmospheres, but what it will do is it will find planets that James Webb will be able to measure ah, the atmospheres okay. of. All right. So TESS's Great. goal is to really is to find a number of targets that James Webb can follow up on, and also big telescopes on the ground can follow up on. Mm-hmm. It's easier for a big telescope to learn a lot about a specific planet that's nearby, but it's hard for a big telescope to find a nearby planet mm-hmm. when it has to look all over the sky. So Tess's mm-hmm. job is to find all these planets for further follow-up. Okay. Wow. So we mentioned earlier, the launch is right around the corner, less than two weeks away. 
Is that something you're heading out to? It, it is. I am going. I, I, uh, I'm heading down there. My daughter, who's now 12, has spring break that week. Oh, and so we're going to see timed. the launch. And, <laughs> Good job. And she last was in Florida. Uh, in 2009 for the Kepler launch Aww. when she was only five. Aww, so she doesn't, fantastic. I guess four, she doesn't really remember it. But it's it's very exciting and, and it's it's going to be an interesting time. Kepler had a relatively sedate operations process. We would take data for three months and then downlink it and work on it. TESS is downlinking data every month on okay. a new field of view. So we have, wow. and Kepler looked at the same field for four right, years. Right. So we didn't have to learn all these new stars tests every month we're going to have a new set of stars mm-hmm. and the the speed of getting that processing done and out to the the community mm-hmm. is is going to be much more much more intense ah so. okay all right how long does it take to get the the data down how long will it take to get the data down from the test spacecraft and turned over then for the scientific community to analyze are we talking is it months or is it, this weeks or so tests is orbiting the Earth, unlike Kepler, which is orbiting the Sun, not the Earth, Tess is orbiting the Earth in about a 13-day right. period orbit, okay. like half the Moon's orbit. And every mm-hmm. every 13 days, it downlinks the data and it takes uh, uh, several hours. And then it collects another set of 13 days of data. And you end up with about 27 days of data on one patch of the sky. Okay. And then it moves to a new part of the sky. And and you get 27 more days. So So the data come down at the end of the 27 days the the pipeline in in recent testing we've been seeing that the pipeline is working really fast that there've been improvements from Kepler because mm-hmm. um, the, there's a lot more data coming there's down there's a lot too, more right? data coming Tess down really so we need to be faster in the order of it's uh, a lot and so we because it's not as many stars it's something like 15,000 stars or so compared to Kepler's 150,000 but it's taking measurements every it's taking every two minutes. Every two minutes, Unlike that's Kepler's right. 30 minutes. Right. Um, it's also going to be taking a, a f- what we called in Kepler a full-frame image, the whole sky, okay. uh, the whole field of its camera, right. every 20 minutes yeah. and downlinking that. And so there's a lot of data that's coming out of tests. And that those those full-field, full-frame images will mm-hmm. be really useful for doing all kinds of science because you can see things like supernovae going off in, yeah. you know, in places you weren't necessarily looking for planets. Um, yeah. And this... Two-minute data from tests of all these uh, stars will come down and be processed. We will search for planets in that and deliver that data to the archive. And, and I think you asked the time for that. I think the official time is from the date the data gets down. We have uh, three months to getting so, in the archive. Okay. We really expect to be oh, able to okay. do much faster than that. Fantastic. Um, and then we have to be able to keep up. So it's a three. You know, it's three months, but then we have to be able to do that every month. Um, but wow. I think the timing looks like it's probably going to be much quicker. <laughs> that sounds very exciting. <laughs> I, I, in in the early days, I'm sure we'll see things in the data. They'll be like, oh, yeah. you know, we'll have to make changes in the pipeline. So they're so we might want the full three months. But I yeah. think once we're in operations, so it what's the takeaway from TESS? What are we hoping to find, or what's TESS's number one goal? Its number one goal is to find something like 50 good targets for James Webb, and where good is a, a nearby planet that we have a. a size from tests okay. because we know how much light it blocked okay. and a mass from a ground-based follow-up okay. on it. Now we're so, talking about an Earth-sized planet in in an Earth-like orbit? They, or? they won't be Earth-like orbits um, in the sense so that they're a one-year the orbit. They're closer because TESS okay. is only looking at the sky for, at patches of the sky for 27 days. Okay. Except one part of TESS, TESS has, has four cameras that are looking essentially from the horizon 
to the zenith straight up and as it as it rotates it just moves that whole that whole fan of cameras over one block and looks mm-hmm. at the next part of the sky but the camera that's looking straight up is essentially just rotating around so the stars mm-hmm. that are at the ecliptic poles the north and south will be observed for a full year it, it looks mm. for one okay. year at the southern hemisphere and then it flips upside down or or right side up i guess and then looks for one year at the northern hemisphere i see But the pole stars will be observed for longer, so we can see longer period planets Mm -hmm. in those. And that's also the James Webb Continuous Viewing Zone. So those are good places for James Webb to look at things, too. Oh, fantastic. Oh, good. So I guess uh, you're getting ready to pack your bags and head off to the Space Coast to (laughs) to see another launch. Uh, Do you uh, remember these feelings from... Nine more than nine, nine years nine, ago. Yeah, right? it's been a while. Yeah, I do definitely. I do, and it's it's amazing. And any big project like this, you know, years and years of work have gone into it before it ever starts taking the data, which yeah. which we is what we really want. And and putting all that work on on top of a rocket and launching it is kind of scary. And I, yeah. I remember a number of us were down at the Kepler launch and being there. Uh, it was a night launch. It was beautiful. Oh, and it went photos. up and it, you could see this this amazing mm-hmm. rocket going off into space mm-hmm. and everything looked great. And we were all very happy. But we were all a little bit edgy still because we knew that the rocket went up and went out of sight. But did the spacecraft turn on? And we had all prearranged to have a, a robocall at the time. From, a robocall. So, so we had given the operations people our, our cell phone numbers and gonna, they were going to send out a notice when they first heard back from Kepler. And I I forget the exact timing, but I think it was about 45 minutes after launch when the spacecraft had been released from the rocket and and powered on and it transmitted back the I'm alive message. And we were all kind of, hmm. you know, celebrating, but on edge a little bit. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and then suddenly everybody in this party's cell phones rang at once and everybody pulled out their <laughs> cell phone and looks and, you know, it was acquisition of signal oh. and everyone was like, yay, wow. you know, Kepler was alive. Wow. And, and all then right. we, we could start working then. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Now the work began yeah. after all that year of years of development and testing and yeah. making it through launch, the most dangerous part. Uh, I know. And you had gotten the signal, it's time to work. So, so I'm, I'm sure, I'm confident tests will, will have the same kind of success and it'll be, uh, I'm sure, very exciting too when we, when we yeah. know it's up and working and yeah. we can really start getting this great data. Oh, that's super fun. Wow. So we talked a lot about a, about a lot of things, Doug. Any mm-hmm. Anything else you wanted to share and talk, mention? Um, I, I just think it's it's just been really great to be on this project. I, I certainly feel very lucky that I got into this, this field of astronomy, in some ways stumbled into it in early, very early on. And, and this exoplanet science, which didn't exist mm-hmm. in 1995 when I was in graduate school. Oh, but that was the year of the first that discovery. That was the year of the first Arava. discovery of a transiting, of an ex- extrasolar planet, not transiting, sorry, um, extrasolar planet. Around a sun-like star. Around a yeah. sun-like star. Um, and to now when it's really very well established, I think it's very, it's very popular. It's very exciting. And, and we're really answering a question that that you don't have to be uh, a PhD in astronomy to understand yeah. why we might want to know this. You know, are are we alone? Is, mm-hmm. is there are there other Earths mm-hmm. out there? Mm-hmm. And we're really taking a step towards doing that. And so I've I've been really fortunate and, and happy that I could do some small part to help help in that oh, process. So. Fantastic, yeah. thank you. Well, I think we'll wrap it up for today. Then 
If you have any questions, we're at NASA Ames and we're using hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So send us your questions and comments and we'll get them to Doug and get back to you. Also, we're a NASA podcast, but we're not the only NASA podcast. Don't forget to check out Houston, we have a podcast and Gravity Assist. The best way to hear all the NASA content is to subscribe to our Omnibus RSS feed, NASA Casts, or visit the NASA app. Well, Doug, thanks again for coming in. It was really fun to chat with you, and I'm so excited that you're working on this new mission and are going to be off to see another launch. You're welcome, Michelle, and thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure.